Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times in Bloomington. And today uh, we're going to talk about acquired immune deficiency syndrome, which is better known as AIDS. Joining me in the studio is uh, one guest. William Yarber is Senior Research Fellow at the Kinsey Institute. He's also a professor, professor of Applied Health Science at Indiana University, a professor of Gender Studies at IU, and the Senior Director and Principal Investigator for the Rural Center for AIDS STD Prevention uh, here on the IU campus. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855 or 877-285-9348, or you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. Dr. Yarber, welcome. My pleasure. Thanks for being here with us. Mary Catherine Carmichael uh, took the day off. She's not here with us today, but uh, I'm sure we're going to fill the hour with lots of uh, questions and calls and also um, just our conversations. So this, this is the, uh, the week, uh, a week that AIDS has really been in the news. It was 25 years ago. Um, that the the first reported cases of AIDS appeared on the federal government's morbidity and mortality weekly report. Um, you were already working in this field at that point, weren't you? Yes. Actually, I had uh, been a health educator and author of curricula related to sexually transmitted diseases uh, at that time. And matter of fact, I was writing uh, at the request of the federal government a curriculum for schools on sexually transmitted diseases and I'll never forget I was uh, riding uh, in my car home from the airport in Indianapolis after being at a professional meeting and hearing uh, the uh, radio report about these new cases. And I can recall calling the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and asking how much emphasis should I place on this sort of new kind of STD in the curriculum and uh, they – said, you know, we aren't quite sure what this is and what's going to happen. And so I put in a little information and then, mm-hmm. you know, uh, <laughs> here we are now 25 years later, mm-hmm. uh, this being um, historically one of the worst pandemics uh, in the history of humankind and probably the worst uh, pandemic, health pandemic in our lifetime. Mm-hmm. Now, can, can you think back to, you know, 25 years ago? Obviously, you can because you just related a story. But, you know, a- after you had, you know, I don't know, a, a few days or a week or so to just sort of let it sink in, I mean, did, could you envision what was going to happen? Or could you, you know, did you have fears about, you know, how bad this might get? Well, not really. I mean, you know, as time goes on, there there are new kinds of medical episodes that occur. And uh, I think initially there was no idea at all uh, the magnitude of what this would develop and how it impacts so many components of society, the economic, the legal, the medical, you know, relationships and health that – I don't think there was any idea at all, even among the health authorities in the federal government. Mm-hmm. So uh, when you sort of look back over the 25 years, I mean, can you think about some uh, of the sort of benchmarks, some things that have happened over the 25 years that have perhaps made this a little bit more positive a, a situation, if you can call a pandemic a positive, uh, if you can see positives in a pandemic? Well, I mean, I think this uh, – you know, the whole aspect of HIV and AIDS has brought out both the good and bad in, in humankind and in our society and throughout the world. I mean, if you look at some of the major advances in uh, medical treatment, uh, the antro, antiretro uh, therapy, uh, you'll find that, you know, there's progress on that aspect, although there's certainly no cure. 
We also realize that I think that uh, there's more resources, although we would still like to have further resources, but more resources related to research and sexually transmitted diseases. And we also know that uh, because of the epidemic, uh, persons, uh, I think, have become more knowledgeable about sexual risk. They've become more understanding of the aspects of of health care and of medicine. And so I think some of those things are, are, you know, some of the positive. But yet, uh, at this 25th anniversary, that was the first cases reported just this last Monday on June the 5th, uh, some people would think that really, even though it's the 25th anniversary, it's no time for celebration. Mm-hmm. All right. Let me give the phone numbers again, 855-0811 in Bloomington, 877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. And you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. Uh, my guest today is uh, Bill Yarber, who's uh, – you know, I gave him a long introduction before, but but in fact, I'll just say that he's one of uh, the nation's experts in terms of um, the issue of AIDS and uh, issues of sexually transmitted diseases. Um, the fact that, that AIDS has become or is, is a pandemic and, and has become such a serious health problem over the last 25 years, uh, we were talking a bit before um, we went on the air about some of the social and cultural obstacles that mm-hmm. have sort of presented themselves. How much do you think those play in the, the seriousness of the AIDS problem over the last two and a half decades? Mm-hmm. Well, I think they're, they're, they're major. I mean, one way you can look at this is, is that uh, the solution isn't exclusively medicine. This, the solution is not exclusively a vaccine. Uh, as long as we have a situation in, in which there's inadequate access to medical care, inadequate economic uh, structure to medical system, uh, Medicine's not going to solve the whole problem. And beyond the fact of that is that probably, you know, finding a cure for AIDS certainly would be dramatic and finding a vaccine. But the politics and the morality uh, related to the risk behaviors remain significant barriers. They were initially barriers and they're still there. And they're expressed uh, maybe in some ways a little bit different now. And then also – in the United States, for example, we're still having about 40,000 new infections each year of HIV, and that's underreported because of inadequate testing. So we also know that there's continuing to be risk behavior. So the behavioral aspects and I think the political aspects continue to remain major barriers. Now, that 40,000 figure, how does that compare with uh, previous years? Is the trend going downward or has it? Has no, the trend is going downward. I think at the beginning of the epidemic, once it sort of got uh, you know, established, we were talking maybe 100, 150,000 new infections a year. Mm-hmm. But in the last few years, it's down to about 40,000. And I guess, you know, leveling of that, you could feel some pride in that. But... Um, but still, you know, as a, someone involved in public health and in, in a public health kind of uh, direction, you know, we still want to decrease that. Now, that's, of course, speaking about the United States. But when you look at Africa and Asia, particularly the uh, new infections are skyrocketing. Mm-hmm. All right. 855-0811, 877-285-9348 and noon at indiana.edu. 
we talked before about how the you know the language and just talking about this uh, this disease so it's it's created some changes in at least uh, I, I think some sensitivities about mm-hmm. what so I, I just sort of wanted to mention that because we may mm-hmm. be talking about some subjects uh, on the air today that I think our WFIU audience can handle mm-hmm. um, but you know if we go back to to some of these um, issues of social and cultural obstacles and and perhaps why this uh, maybe there, there was um, help on AIDS was so slow in coming. I mean, at first, this was considered the gay disease. Right. And that, uh, you know, if you look way back at the beginning of the epidemic, it took the federal government a long time to even acknowledge this. That is the more the, you know, the executive branch instead of the health uh, branch. And uh, I think it reflects uh, a kind of perspective that that's still present among some people and some groups that, you know, that gay men, for example, are more dis- a type of what we consider to be a discardable individual, so a discardable group of people and that they are getting, quote, what they deserve from this, you know, illicit type of sexual behavior. And uh, I think feelings about uncomfortableness with very sexual orientation has is, is historically been a part of our culture. It remains. And it expresses itself in different ways. But once the AIDS epidemic came, then expressed itself in even greater by isolation, by stigma, and also of of inadequate resources. And, you know, there was a famous movie 15 or so years ago called And the Band Played On. And this, uh, you know, video from the – actually based on a book – uh, illustrated how, from one perspective, um, there was a slow response by the federal government because of the fact that the, most of the cases happened to be in gay men. And it makes one think or ponder, you know, if this epidemic had started in uh, heterosexual individuals, would the response have been different? And it illustrates, I think, one of the things that this epidemic has done is accentuated some of the uh, ambivalence uh, that uh, our culture has related to sexuality. Mm-hmm. Now, the the trends and the numbers, uh, how have they gone in terms of uh, the number of infections among gay men versus other parts of the population? It, it seems as if early on, all we heard about was infections in gay right. men. Well, no, we see recently uh, increases proportionally among minority men and women, particularly Hispanics, Afro-Americans, we've seen an increase in uh, cases for women, but also among heterosexuals. And we have had a lowering of the number of new cases for uh, uh, men who have sex with men, uh, but uh, that seems to be uh, increasing some now because maybe of this relaxation that uh, with the new antiretroviral drugs, uh, that there's been, you know, people can live longer and have a higher quality of life, even though it's not a cure. That that some would believe, social scientists would speculate that uh, because of this, some individuals have become put their guard down relative to uh, risk reduction and prevention. Mm-hmm. Now we're uh, you know we're in Indiana, and uh, one of the the major I think milestones along the way perhaps was the the case involving Ryan White in the state. Could you talk a little bit about uh, how that maybe changed some attitudes about AIDS? Well, Ryan White, I believe he was in Kokomo, Indiana, and, and uh, he uh, 
became infected with HIV. And, you know, it just illustrates, I think, at the time, uh, and this still happens some, he was considered an innocent victim because my recollection was he received this through a blood transfusion and meaning, I guess, that the other people aren't innocent. But I think it illustrated some of the language uh, that was, you know, that marginalized individuals. But he was like not permitted to go to school. And, you know, he had famous persons rally behind him like Michael Jackson, Elton John. And I think that really became nationally a focal point for the issues of the rights of individuals who are infected with HIV, but also I think help us, I, I think, give more attention to about uh, education and, and eliminating the myths about transmission. And, you know, he is now considered, you know, really one of the early heroes in this. As a matter of fact, in, in our office here at the Rural Center for AIDS STD Prevention here on the Bloomington campus, you walk up the steps into a door. It's got a large window, and you look right in there, and there's a picture of Ryan White. And uh, mm-hmm. we think it's just appropriate that you know the center being here that we honor him. And then there's been federal laws, or excuse me, federal programs to support uh, HIV prevention treatment, named the Ryan White Act. Mm-hmm. And so here is a fellow Hoosier, one of our sons, who faced uh, discrimination, who faced harassment and ridicule but was strong and and uh, was committed to educating people uh, about the real truth about transmission. Mm-hmm. All right. 855-0811-877-285-9348 and noon at indiana.edu. If you're just joining us, uh, Bill Yarber is our guest. Uh, Professor Yarber is a senior director and principal investigator for the Rural Center for AIDS STD Prevention on the Indiana University campus. He uh, has various other titles, but he's, he basically is an expert in uh, AIDS. Um, you mentioned you know, myths about AIDS. I, I, you spend your time, a lot of your time, on a university campus talking mm-hmm. with young people, um, and then you're also involved with with a lot of rural people. Mm-hmm. What are there still a lot of myths and, and misconceptions about AIDS transmission? About what happens when you get the the when you're HIV infected? Mm-hmm. Well, when you look. Uh, you know, a few years after the beginning of the epidemic, there was enormous attention about educating people, uh, not only in schools but public health uh, service announcements on media and, and, you know, newspapers and so forth. And, and I think it really got people's attention. And uh, some of that was sort of almost unbelievable. It, you know, required a, a, a frankness about, you know, certainly use of language. But as the numbers grew, the number of deaths, uh, I think it really got people's attention. And uh, and then it seems like, you know, uh, as the epidemic continued and particularly in the last years, I think people – the last few years, people become more relaxed. And, and so the younger generation, particularly those in junior and senior high school, well, I think we have to reinforce, uh, you know, the things that they maybe learned from uh, – from the schools, but we also have to, I think, be persistent and consistent on our messages, uh, because people still sometimes don't quite understand, you know, the, the the exact behaviors that transmit, and and part of the, and then also risk reduction. As just as one example, uh, in our culture, there's considerable uh, division about. Um, 
uh, some groups about the effectiveness of male condoms in preventing HIV infection and sexually transmitted diseases and actually some efforts by groups to deliberately exaggerate uh, the failure rates. And so there's this tension in our culture about do we provide information to young people about condoms? Do we talk about their effectiveness? And I think that illustrates again right now some of the barriers that we have relative to providing complete information to young people, but certainly information that is medically accurate. Mm-hmm. And can you go into a little bit about the, the effectiveness of condoms and according to your research or what you know? Well, you know, there's two aspects of using uh, uh, male condoms. Uh, historically, the emphasis has been on consistent use, and certainly that you know that makes a sense. And a lot of the research is is on consistent use. But in recent emphasis, as a matter of fact, at the, at the rural center, we've uh, in the last few years done a lot of research on incorrect use of condoms and the problems and errors that people make when they uh, use condoms, and find that you know some of these numbers are really pretty surprising. And so, when you look at the use of male condoms, not only do you have to be concerned about consistency, but also correct use. But when used correctly and used consistently, then the scholarly research that that is published in medically peer-reviewed journals, you know, we're talking about in you know in the ninety percent, and and uh, again, it's considered to be a risk reduction method. Would not be considered to be uh, complete prevention, but we also know that there's human error. Mm-hmm. Now we we uh, we were sort of talking about this before we went on the air. Also, that the Herald Times did a story about your research on this. We put it on the front page, which created some uh, – a bit of a stir. We got a few mm-hmm. letters to the editor. Mm-hmm. It was about uh, you know, the, what your research found about, about condom use among rural men, mm-hmm. correct? And correct. Can you yeah. go into that a little bit? Yeah, we did a study uh, – actually uh, a random telephone survey of uh, rural men in the state of Indiana and asked them uh, a, a series of questions related to specific kinds of behaviors of condom use, that is, the correct behaviors. Uh, the last time he'd had sex with a woman, it, you know, we found that, uh, that you know, you're getting up to a fourth and a fifth of the men not using the condom for the entire sexual exposure, putting the condom on wrong way and having to turn it over and use again, which is, you know, a risk behavior, having difficulties with erections and using condoms and that being a barrier. And so... The numbers were, uh, you know, less than uh, probably around a fourth or one-fifth, but this represented the last time that they'd had uh, sexual contact with a woman. And uh, when we look at uh, the number of errors for the last three months, we even find that it's higher. But our research also indicates that most schools throughout the country, most schools in Indiana, have difficulties politically talking about condoms, and those that do don't often talk about the correct use of that. So again, we ha- this illustrates, I think, this cultural conflict about the right for information of young people, types of information that might protect their health. Who owns that information? Do adults own it? Do the health teachers own it? And do young people have this right? And it's it's an issue that we face even after 25 years of this epidemic. Now, you've you've written uh, curriculums for, uh, I guess, sex education. 
correct? Well, I wrote the first uh, school curriculum in the United States on AIDS at the request of the federal government. Mm-hmm. And what are, uh, has that curriculum changed over, over the years? How, how much have you updated it? Well, that's an interesting uh, you know, question. As I recall back, um, uh, always in these uh, curricula, the curriculum happened to involve a student uh, book, booklet and, and a teacher's manual. And then even in those earlier editions, I talked about uh, sexual abstinence uh, and sexual exclusivity and condoms. And I think throughout time, I'm still talking about those issues. In some of the later editions, I think I've expanded upon the aspects of abstinence. Uh, in the early edition, I said it was the surest way of not acquiring HIV or other sexually transmitted diseases. And I think, uh, interestingly, as a result of uh, efforts of groups to say that we ought to talk more about abstinence, I've expanded that topic and I think uh, provided information that uh, maybe makes this more uh, applicable to a wider range of audience. For example, that affirming that abstinence is a normal uh, or it's a, a normal and natural aspect of being a young person. But also saying that sexuality is too. But those who choose to be absent should be supported. And so those are some of the newer messages that I have talked about in absence. Uh, but also in condoms, talked a little bit more about the research. So I think the message needs to continue to be made. It needs to be consistent and it needs to be comprehensive. When we provide sexual abstinence message only, then we have to ask ourselves, are we speaking, are we providing adequate information to the young people who choose to be sexually active even though we may not want them to be? Do they have a right to know how to protect their health? And, you know, this is a a topic that's really difficult for many people in our culture. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, and to follow up on that, uh, you are uh, the messenger uh, and I know that you know we. That I certainly know this firsthand. Sometimes people have a tendency to want to shoot the messenger. How um, how how difficult um, has your work been in terms of, of public reaction? I mean, how mm-hmm. how negative uh, has the reaction been at times? Has it been difficult to carry on? Well, I I probably don't know all about it. Uh, that uh, you know, any kind of public reactions that uh, you know in schools throughout the country. And when we first published the. Well, I authored the first AIDS curriculum in the United States we immediately within two, three months at 200,000 copies sold it and all throughout uh, you know, the United States because it was the first. Uh, but I know throughout my career, particularly in the earlier part of the career, that I did receive sexual – excuse me, received harassment, uh, harassing phone calls, uh, mail at, at my office and uh, it, it just reminded me that uh, – and I think it helped me clarify that uh, the kind of work that I do and people in sexuality research and sexuality education, if they're looking for complete social approval, they won't get it because <laughs> some people you know, think what they do is harmful. Uh, but it helped me clarify and reaffirm my commitment as a health researcher, as a sexuality educator to provide information to young people that I personally think they have a, a right to know. And I decided early I, to not be intimidated by this because I've seen times where that's occurred and, and people have backed away from, from what they're doing. And uh, I have this commitment that, uh, we, that persons who are educated about STDs and sexuality 
uh, that uh, and research has indicated that they're going to make wiser decisions. In the long haul, it's going to help that aspect to be a, a positive aspect of their health. Mm-hmm. All right. We've hit uh, break time. I've got uh, several questions, and I hope that some people will uh, call us and, and talk with Dr. Yarber about uh, their questions about AIDS and, and sexual educa- education or, or whatever. Our numbers are 855-0811-877-285-9348. And you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. You're listening to Noon Edition on member-supported WFIU. Production support comes from Closets 2, providing organized and expanded closet and storage space for home office and garage, using a variety of systems with no major renovations. Closets 2 owned and operated in Bloomington, 332-2233. And from South Dunn Street Project, represented by Brian Lappin Real Estate, classic bungalow-inspired architecture in the Bryan Park neighborhood of Bloomington, www.southdunnstreet.info. The Prairie Home Companion movie starring Garrison Keillor, Meryl Streep, Kevin Kline, Lily Tomlin, Woody Harrelson, and Tommy Lee Jones opens today. To celebrate the occasion, WFIU presents a special Prairie Home Pledge show on Saturday at 6 o'clock. An opportunity to pick up a soundtrack CD featuring many of the stars of the movie and to show your support for WFIU as you make your pledge for high-quality programming. Do join us Saturday evening at 6 for A Prairie Home Companion. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg from the Herald Times. Uh, Mary Catherine Carmichael could not be with us today, but I have one guest with me. It's uh, William Yarber, Senior Research Fellow with the Kinsey Institute, Professor of Applied Health Science and Professor of Gender Studies at Indiana University and also the Senior Director and Principal Investigator for the Rural Center for AIDS STD Prevention, which is on the Indiana University campus. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348 from outside of the Bloomington area, or you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. Uh, we were talking about sexuality education before we, uh, we took that break, and I, the, the question that comes to mind is, you know, what ages are you writing your curricula for, and um, have, do you believe that, that sexual, sexuality education needs to be taught at to younger age groups now. We hear about people becoming sexually active earlier. Do you think mm-hmm. that needs to be moved earlier into the grades? Well, the curricula that I have written are specifically on uh, HIV and STD prevention. And it, uh, I've written two of them. One was for uh, middle school and then uh, also a, another one that would be for junior high school and senior high school. And I think it's important that uh, in this contemporary society and contemporary world with the expansion, of course, of, of access of uh, information through internet and obviously television, that, that younger people at younger and younger ages are, are, have access to uh, images and material that uh, we as adults when we were younger did not. And uh, – but they don't get oftentimes uh, complete information. Uh, they get information that is distorted, that's biased. Uh, and, uh, and so to me that illustrates that we really have to, I think, consider 
looking at, at uh, developmentally what is appropriate at certain ages. And, and certain aspects of uh, sexuality education certainly uh, you know, are part of, uh, of uh, elementary school, upper elementary school uh, curriculum. Uh, the belief is is that it's better to talk about this in a in a setting uh, before the student is exposed to that uh, through the peers or through the media, and certainly the best place for this to happen is within the home. That a parents or parents or guardians can talk to a young person. It's really difficult for parents to do that, and that's why I think. And, and historically, the schools have tried to be uh, supplement what is done at home and oftentimes be the only source of information. All right. We have a phone call. Let's go to uh, Dylan. Dylan? Um, hello. Uh, My name is Dylan, and I'm oh. calling. Um, I'm from Louisiana. And I want to share with you, when I was in the state of North Carolina as a long-term care administrator, I sat on a committee that developed a program where parents, would have parental rights um, for sexual education. Uh And I feel that it's very important that the parents are brought in. Okay, basically when I sat on that committee, I was was not a mother of children at the time, but a health care provider interested in providing information on AIDS and other STDs and felt that it was necessary to be in the classroom, but I also felt that you needed to inform the parents on the curriculum that you were educating their child with. Since that time, I've become an educator myself. I'm active in the Louisiana Governor's Program on Abstinence, and I'm a pro-life activist. I teach in a Catholic parochial school in Louisiana, and... um, one other thing I'd like to mention is I'm a parent of two boys, mm-hmm. a single parent of two boys. Recently, my oldest child, you know, sat up in a class where a young man was teaching them about condoms and spoke out that the best way that you can protect yourself is to abstain from sex. Of course, um, I know most children are not going to be vocal at 13 and 14 years old, but it comes from the home. I'm very grateful to the young man that I'm listening to today. Um, for the amount of research that he's done. And I think the best way that we can protect our children is to be well-informed, is to make sure that the parents are aware of the curriculum that's going to be expressed in the classroom so that we can assist our children and not be surprised by what they come home with. Um, I'm very grateful for the support of NPR program, and thank you for your time today. All right. Thank you for calling. Reaction? Yes. Well, uh, yes. Thank you for calling, and I'm impressed with what you you know you've done. And, and uh, uh, you know, I want to reaffirm that I think that uh, when we're talking about issues that deal with sexuality in schools, that uh, one of the suggestions we have is you know is to make that information available to inform parents about that. And uh, and you know, what, several reasons for that, I guess, is that certainly, as you said, is that. If the child comes home and said that we've talked about certain issues, that maybe the parents wouldn't be so unprepared that they might be able to follow up or answer the child's questions. Um, And we know that in most states uh, throughout the United States, uh, parental notification is important. And in some states, uh, you know, parents can withhold their children from such instruction. And as we talk here, we're we're sort of mixing two things together. 
sexuality education is more than just reproductive biology. Sexuality education is more than just talking about AIDS or sexually transmitted diseases. It's talking also about relationships and the meaning of sexuality in life and the role that it plays and, and the, uh, you know, the social aspects of that. And what uh, we're particularly focusing on today, as you know, is the HIV and STD component. In some schools, that component is separate because uh, in some schools they aren't permitted or allowed to have sexuality education, but they can talk about disease prevention. All right. 855-0811-877-285-9348 and noon at indiana.edu. We appreciate that caller from Louisiana. That was a little bit surprising to us here in Indiana, but we will take calls from anywhere. Um, I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about the work of the Rural Center for AIDS STD Prevention. Uh, that may be something unfamiliar to to many people. Uh, I certainly couldn't tell you a lot about it myself. So mm-hmm. um, what exactly – when was it founded and, and what's your mission? Yeah, RCAP, that's the acronym where, that we use for the Rural Center for AIDS STD Prevention, was founded in actually, uh, 1994. And uh, initial funding was uh, through the U.S. Department of Agriculture – and uh, now we're funded by the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. As a matter of fact, uh, on March the 1st, we uh, was awarded another five-year cooperative agreement from CDC. And our CAP is a joint project headquartered here at Indiana University, but a joint project of Indiana University, University of Kentucky, and University of Colorado. And our main focus is to provide information uh, through the rural HIV STD preventions throughout the uh, prevention specialists throughout the country, and we uh, produce fact sheets. We have a mo- monthly facts uh, email newsletter about uh, research in HIV and STDs. We have a national conference every two years. Uh, we conduct research on risk behavior. And we're the only such center that exclusively focuses on HIV, STD prevention, rural communities, uh, the only one in the United States. And so sort of here in the heartland and I growing up in a small little town, Salem, Indiana, and then this being, you know, rural here, uh, I think it's, it, you know, it provides, I think, uh, a valuable service for the rural community and hopefully something that uh, – you know, as uh, a good reflection on Indiana University. How do the issues differ uh, between rural communities and urban centers? You know, the issues are, are I guess the, you would say probably about the same, but they're, some of them are accentuated in the rural community. Whenever you're talking about HIV AIDS in particular, we know that no matter where a person lives, there may, uh, that person may be victimized by stigma or uh, types of harassment. Uh, they may feel isolated or alone. Uh, they may not feel that they can be honest or truthful to friends or family. Uh, and that's true whether it's urban or rural. But usually in rural – excuse me, in rural areas, it's – they're more accentuated. They're stronger. Persons with HIV infection or, or with AIDS in rural communities oftentimes are enormously isolated. Uh, they may not uh, – you know, they may come home to their small town if they'd been in a larger city and hopefully their family will accept them. But, uh, you know, sometimes families do not. Uh, uh, they sort of maybe have to sort of 
isolate or hide the individual, and they may receive scorn, uh, you know, from their neighbors. There aren't, aren't adequate support groups in rural communities. If you're in more of the urban areas and you happen to be a, a man with HIV infection, for example, in a rural area, whether you're a, uh, a gay man or not, you would probably be labeled as that, and uh, there wouldn't be adequate support groups. Sometimes you find that in urban areas, but you don't in rural areas. Oftentimes in rural areas, people feel like they're isolated from the HIV problem because there's this sort of belief that they know what everyone is doing. And if they, you know, if someone had HIV, we would know about it. Well, we realize that, of course, it's, that's, that's not true. Our research, uh, focus group research, of uh, young people in 4-H clubs that we did, I think, several years ago, uh, really pointed this out to the fact that they they felt isolated from the problem. Uh, they felt like that they didn't have to be as careful because, uh, you know, no one in their community has HIV. And yet, if you look at the statistics from the State Board of Health, there were infections in that community. And young people had difficulties uh, if they happened, for example, wanted to have access to condoms for risk reduction. They had real difficulties in their small community of uh, acquiring them. Uh, you know, if they went to the local store, the cashier may be a neighbor, maybe a family member. And so there's these kinds of things, uh, you know, the uh, not as, as strong typically health care uh, lack of transportation to, to good health care in, in larger cities. These are some of the more significant barriers that are found in rural communities. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, I want to ask about – this is perhaps something I should have asked about uh, very early in the program. But the early on in this um, pandemic, I think HIV was considered to be a, a death sentence and it would be sooner rather than later. If you were HIV infected, you, you would – get AIDS and it would be a fairly quick and not particularly pleasant way to die. Um, How has that changed over the years in terms of – I know you're not a physician, but how has that Mm -hmm. changed over the years in terms of life expectancy and whatnot? Well, I mean if you look at some of the – Aspects that you know there might be considered success since the beginning of the epidemic is this greater attention, focus on research uh, in viruses, and uh, and then you know within the last few years the development of the highly active retrovirus therapy uh, type of drugs, and uh, for many people, but not all people, these drugs have increased their quality of life, has increased the longevity of life. And, uh, uh, you know, those are, are really, I think, important milestones that, uh, that we, sh- we should celebrate. Those are not cures for HIV infection or AIDS. And it appears to be, you know, eventually that a person will die from an opportunistic uh, infection. There needs to be much more research on this and, and uh, you know, continued development as it's not effective for all individuals, some of them have uh, you know some severe um, side effects. And as a result of this, however, as I mentioned earlier, uh, it may have also impacted uh, individuals and in them feeling a little bit more uh, you know relaxed about this. You know, maybe the thought that, gosh, you know, if I do get HIV infected, if I acquire HIV, then uh, you know, I have friends that, uh, you know, they're doing really well and their life expectancy is longer. And, um, 
so that I think they put their guard down a little bit. But you talk to individuals who are being treated for HIV, you know, the drug, uh, taking the drugs so many times, so often a day, and then some of the side effects is, is a challenge. Mm-hmm. All right. We have about 10 or 12 minutes left in the program. Our phone numbers again, 855 if you're in Kokomo or somewhere else outside of the Bloomington calling area. And you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. Uh, you've mentioned the economic impact of uh, AIDS in the last 25 years. Could you expand on that a bit? Well, when you look at the uh, enormous cost of health care, uh, the enormous cost of the uh, the drugs for uh, therapy, and also the enormous cost of loss of time from work and loss of life. Uh, you know, the, the economic cost is is enormous, and uh, it's impacting the economic structures of uh, of many countries, particularly those in Africa and some of those in Asia, as well as ours. Uh, but some of those countries don't have the economic resource that we have, and and it's presented a dilemma, I think, in the health uh, research and care industry. You know, where do we put all of our resources? I mean, we still have other severe health problems of, you know, of cancer, for example. And so, you know, there's this little bit of this uh, competition and intention about where where we put the resources for research. And uh, is. So I think the economic aspect uh, is is very very powerful, and it illustrates that this disease is, has impacted several components of society. Mm-hmm. Now you, we've talked a lot about uh, AIDS and HIV in the United States. I mean that's what we're fo- that's sort of our focus. That's what we we think about most often. But you alluded to the fact that in Asia and Africa. Um, things are much more uh, difficult, much worse than they are mm-hmm. in the U.S. Uh, could you talk about the impact of AIDS on, let's just say, on Africa? Well, in in Africa, if um, if you look at what's happened, it's it's reversed the trends in some of the sub-Sahara Africa countries relative to average life expectancy. Uh, they were going up, and now it's going down. Uh, they have had, of course, enormous economic impact, enormous social impact. Um, and so what it's really done, I think, is for some countries, it's really impeded uh, their advancement to a stronger society that is a society that can provide a greater education, a society that can provide greater health care uh, and you know, higher quality of life because it's sapped so much of their economic capacity as well as the, the high death rates of people in their prime of their productive lives. And so – and many of the, these countries don't have the health care structure or the economic capability to change that much. Uh, many of these countries uh, – you know, we have political barriers. Uh, morality type of barriers and many of those countries do too where their definition of sexuality related to you know gender roles the power of men the lack of power entitlement of women I mean those things are are, are difficulties we face but in, in many of the other countries particularly in, in in Africa and Asia those aspects and beliefs about medicine and and some of the mythology about medicine those are enormous barriers 
and that really presents strong challenges to prevention. And so we've learned, I think, long time ago that it's more than just information, that we have to motivate individuals to practice risk reduction and prevention. Uh, and that's a real challenge whenever you have to overcome any kind of cultural perspectives about sexuality, cultural perspectives about gender roles. Mm-hmm. All right. I, I want to give you an opportunity in the next uh, – the last few minutes of the program and you know, we have again about eight minutes to go uh, to talk about uh, – I, I don't know. You can get as political as you want I suppose. Mm-hmm. But to talk about what needs to be done to help reduce uh, the number of – AIDS mm-hmm. cases every year, what you think uh, government can do, what individuals mm-hmm. can do, what schools can do, yep. what families can do? Oh, being a health educator and a social scientist uh, in person dealing with health behaviors, that's certainly my emphasis. I don't want to say that we shouldn't continue our strong research in the biological aspects and in the vaccine. Uh, that is important, but that itself is not the exclusive answer. We need, I think, to continue to work on finding out why people practice risk behavior despite the fact that they know that that is risky. And it all deals with sexuality. We're all sexual beings. It's a very, very powerful component of healthful living. And how we are able to develop effective prevention programs and test those and find those that are most effective, I think is really critical. HIV prevention is complicated. It takes not only the medical community, but it takes parents, it takes schools, and it takes a public health effort. And even after 25 years of this epidemic, we still face political barriers in providing complete information to persons and worried about the sensitivity of complete information, yet people are practicing risky behavior. So I think we still need to be brutally, as a word that some people would use, frank when we talk about the sexual behaviors and injecting drug use behaviors that expose people. And then I think we have to look towards science to see what science says. Science doesn't have all the answers, of course. But, for example, science says needle exchange programs are reducing the number of new infections. Yet that type of risk reduction and prevention program is not supported by the federal government. And it's, again, very controversial, the belief that if we support this, that it will support drug addicts. And so sometimes in risk reduction and prevention, we have trade-offs. Uh, research indicates that it, as an example, that it reduces the number of new infections. It's very controversial, and yet it cannot be used, although many places use it sort of, you know, the underground. And so those – and then the efforts of only providing young people abstinence only and not talking about condoms, thinking that if we tell them about condoms, that endorses sex. And I personally don't believe that, and research does not indicate that. I think young people and all people have a right to complete information that will protect their health. And after 25 years, it's amazing we're still fighting those battles. Will we at the 50th anniversary? Good question. Um, 
do you think this battle needs to be fought at the you know local level, state level, national level? I imagine the answer is going to be all three. But what, where can you know where are the divisions? What what should be done where? Well, I mean, I don't know if there's a, you know simple answer to that research, public opinion research, in which we've conducted ourselves here in the state of Indiana, says that most of the public adults believe that we should have comprehensive messages. We should tell young people, for example, about condoms, that they reduce risk. And research that we've conducted here and even in the state of Indiana says that the vast majority says that we should um, tell them about how to use condoms correctly. Yet most schools do not do that. And so I don't know it's a simple answer. Uh, I think social change is very dynamic and it's very, very difficult. Hopefully, the goal is that those who support the more comprehensive approach need to speak. They need to use their media outlets. They need letters to the editors. They need to go to school boards. They need to elect officials who support this and let elected officials know that we, the majority, feel that we are not doing an adequate job in HIV prevention. And we want to try to – we want to encourage you and we're going to try to hold you accountable to doing that. Unfortunately, the history has been the vocal opposition, the minority is well organized. They're more financed and they are the ones, you know, they're the ones that are making the noise. And, and I think the silent majority can learn lessons from that. And so – it seems to be now that we have this fear of information, the fear that information will result in, in bad, in quote, immoral behavior. And uh, to politically, on a, particularly on a national level, it's a tough time for reproductive health issues. Mm-hmm. Now, um, it, you talked about needle exchange programs uh, as an, an example, and I, I know that you, know, you probably are familiar with some model educational programs too. I mean, are you – could you point some of those out? Is there a particular state that you think is doing very, very well? Uh, are you familiar with a, a school corporation in some state that you think has a curriculum mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. is exactly or, – or a best practices kind of thing? We only have two or yeah, three minutes. Yeah, sure, right. I don't know of any specific school, but in general, research has indicated the states that are more progressive in social issues, that are more progressive reproductive issues in their particular state, and the state that, that would be more politically uh, and religiously moderate or liberal are the ones that are providing the most comprehensive messages. So in general, the more northern states, the more eastern states are, are doing this, and more of the general, the southern rural states are a little bit more restrictive in their messages. But research indicates that Curricula in schools, for example, that are comprehensive, delay the onset of intercourse, and when they, will, uh, cho- when the young person chooses to have intercourse, they're more likely to use contraception. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, you're very passionate about this issue, and I know that you you do a lot of public speaking. You go mm-hmm. around, and uh, how have things changed in terms of the reception to your messages? You know, over the last twenty five mm-hmm. years. Well, I think. There was a period of time maybe eight to ten years ago that I thought the message was maybe less controversial, that the message was more accepted. But with the more of a changing of our culture, I think we're going into a little bit more of a 
of a moderate or a conservative aspect of our culture, at least a lot of that is politically, then I'm finding that, you know, that there are still uh, individuals that uh, – and, you know, this is the American way, of course. I mean people have the right to think how they are. As a public health person, I, I look at it from a public health perspective of protecting people. And, uh, and so, you know, I think that we still have some very, very strong components of society that uh, are very opposed to a lot of the things that from a public health perspective, we think uh, public health educators and public health researchers thinks are the best way of controlling STD and HIV. Mm-hmm. Well, I appreciate it. We, we are out of time. We've had a fairly shy audience today, I guess, but hopefully they were just fascinated by our conversation and we're all out there listening. I want to thank Bill Yarber for being here with us today. It's a, a very interesting and a very important topic uh, talking about AIDS and, and sexuality education. For uh, Mary Catherine Carmichael, for producers Claire Deedy and Catherine Hegeman, and engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times.